And then should we worry when food is just really cheap? You know, someone oh. says, oh, I can buy a, a full chicken for five euro, but... Like, is that even good? It's definitely not something I'd be buying because you have to be able to realise, well, that's unsustainable. Like The transportation of it, the packaging of it has to be a couple of 40, 50 cent alone. So, and the shop has to get a profit. So really, is this chicken being bought for two euros maybe? And what exactly have they given this chicken for a year or two of its life for two euros? Like there is definitely that cheap is not always better. Hello, welcome to episode 46 of Gary Talks. I'm your host, Gary Kelly. Firstly, before I start talking about today's amazing guest, I want to thank you for supporting the show. We have really risen up through the charts on all the major podcast platforms over the past few weeks. And it's because of you for listening to the show and for telling your friends and colleagues about it that the podcast has performed so well. Last week, we reached number three in Apple Podcasts entrepreneurship category. So thank you to everyone who's been following the show on their own podcast platform and either downloading or streaming it and also for telling their friends and colleagues about it. Also, I always love engaging with the people who listen to the podcast. So you can DM me directly by following Gary Talks on Instagram, LinkedIn, or TikTok. So I told you at the start that we have an amazing guest on the show this week, and indeed we do. We have an award-winning chef, Martin O'Donnell, a Galway man who for 15 years was chef at the prestigious 12 Hotel in Barna. But most recently, he's taken on another challenge and adventure for himself by setting up his business in a 200-year-old famine cottage in Sawtill by the Atlantic Ocean called Black Rock Cottage, which all started from a swim in the sea. In this episode, Martin talks about how a week's work experience when he was 15 years old turned into a lifetime passion. He tells us about his love of seaweed and the many uses you can get from it. He talks about menu costing and the increasing challenges restaurants are facing. And he also talks about what frustrates him in the kitchen. So there's plenty of laughs in this episode. So sit back, relax and enjoy. This is a GK Media podcast. (laughs) Chef Martin O'Donnell, thank you for joining us in Gary Talks. Thanks very much for having me. (laughs) You're probably well used to that name, but I think it's... uh, (laughs) It is your Instagram handle, but it, there's certainly a ring to it. Black Rock Cottage. Mm-hmm. It's a new business that you opened here in Sawtill in Galway City around November of 2022. And it's thriving. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think there's a lot of reasons why. One of the key things is location, location, location. For sure. Yeah. But also food. Very true. And service. Yeah. But let's go back. And I know you've probably told the story a hundred times, but for those who haven't heard it, I think it's a great story. Thank you. Because the location, again, as I said, is key. Mm -hmm. And something that has really taken off in Galway over the last few years, really, probably since COVID, I would say that it's really, you know, gotten the numbers there. It's people going in swimming in the (laughs) sea, which you did yourself this morning. And we're in you know, late January, early February, and it's freezing at the moment. I mean, people oh. were slipping on footpaths this morning when I was bringing <laughs> the kids to school. You were in the sea swimming. Tell us about Black Rock. Oh, where do I start? As you mentioned swimming, that's how this whole project came along. One of the owners is a sea swimmer as well. We'd we'd see each other at the same time. He dropped kids, I dropped kids, and we'd just bump into each other. Oh, hi, you know, so... It was kind of like a friend, friendly kind of gathering at the start, greeting each other and it just developed. And he asked me one day, what do I do? Do you know, why are you always here at five past nine? Usually people are working at this time. And I was like, no, no, I start maybe at 10 or half 10. So he was like, oh, what do you do? And I said, oh, I'm a chef. And it kind of just started from there. And, you know, when I was swimming, it was like looking in from the ocean into Black Rock Cottage. And it was like, how iconic is this building? You know, it's a 200 year old famine cottage that's been restored like pristine. But at the time it was a ruin. 
It was okay. a ruin. Yeah. It was in ruins. Um, I actually didn't really know what the project was going to be. So when they asked me about joining, I was like, no way. Like, you know, not expecting what was being proposed, you know. So once I had the, the initial meetings, I was actually blown away with what was being planned and developed. So, yeah, it kind of. Because at the time you were a chef for about 14 years in the 12 Hotel. Yeah. Boutique correct. Hotel. Yeah. Well-renowned. Yeah. For its food and everything and its atmosphere. Always a busy, busy spot. Mm -hmm. You have built up a good career mm -hmm. in the 12 Hotel. And you're looking at a derelict cottage <laughs> <laughs> just beside where you go swimming every morning in the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah. What turned the tide? <laughs> well, I was, you know, when I was out in the water and I was looking in, I was like, Jesus, this is a handy office, isn't it? That you can see, <laughs> you can nearly see in the door from the water. Uh, so, like the initial talks was, uh, they were saying, oh yeah, it's going to be a restaurant. We want you involved. And I was like, look, I have a nice job in the 12. As I said, I was there for 15 years, built up a great reputation, thousands of awards. So I was in a really comfortable place. Uh, I wasn't looking for a new opportunity. But when they showed me what they were proposing to build or what was being built, I was just clearly blown away. And I was like, what a better location. So like over the years, I've always tried to push myself out of my comfort zone, as in even in the 12, trying to make it better. How can we do this better? How can we, during lockdown, we transformed into probably the best takeaway in the country. The 12 actually provided my 40th birthday dinner. <laughs> wow. Because I turned 40 in April of 2020. Okay. And there was loads of plans. Yeah. Things with the family, things with the missus, things with the lads and whiskey tours and stuff like that. And uh, the world was turned upside down for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And it was my 40th birthday anyways, and everywhere was closed. And I was feeling very down in the dumps that I wasn't going to have the big celebration that I thought I was going to have for my 40th. And the wife said, do you know what? I think they're doing takeaways in the 12. Mm -hmm. And we went and it was brilliant. We pulled up outside. So you ring, you make your order and then you pull up in the car park. and Someone has their mask on and gloves yeah. or whatever. They come to the door with your takeaway bag and off you went. And it was great. Because mm -hmm. it was just, I felt like we did something yeah. for my 40th. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was very strange times. Um, I think we really perfected that whole transformation into a takeaway. And you were doing like cocktails and bags and yeah, stuff. Yeah, those brown bag cocktails. There was uh, like we did Valentine's dinner. We did New Year's Eve. We did a tasting menu. So like I would have done in West, we had like a six course tasting menu or something. You know, there was a mousse bouche, there was oysters, there was bread course. And I was like, you know. And the feedback we got was amazing. Um, we did Mother's Day. We did afternoon tea. We, it was just like a whole new... People ask me, you know, you were 15 years in the 12. You know, how did you stay so long? But, you know, after about seven years working there, I moved up to West, which was like a totally new job for me. Mm -hmm. Yes, it was in the same building. But and then during lockdown, we transformed into a takeaway. We came back out of it. We went back into it. So... Like all of these transitions was just like for me an exciting new adventure, which kept me really uh, intrigued and kept the the excitement there. How does your friend mean you're there 15 years? How, how did you stick with it so long? I mean, is it common for chefs to bounce from place to place a lot? <sighs> it is and it isn't. I think when you find a good place and you're happy, chefs tend to stay. So like I had a great relationship, have a great relationship with our general manager, Fergus. I won't say allowed to do what I want, but we were given the freedom and also his passion for food and wine matched ours. So it was a great relationship. So that was kind of why the longevity was there was because of mutual food and wine uh, love. So I think when you have that, most chefs will be happy to stay in a position that they're given what they want based on creativity and food. So you're there a long time. Everything's going smoothly. Loads of innovation, loads of things that you're coming up with that are working really, really well. And then you come up to Fergus and say, the day has come. Yeah, it was a tough conversation, I won't lie. Uh, as I said, we had a great relationship together, 15 years, working side by side. Uh, came through many ups and downs. And uh, yeah, I, I'll, I'll probably never forget that day of saying, Fergus, look, the time has come. He was great about it. He asked me, what is it, Martin? Or, you know, where are you going? Uh, I explained the project to him, which was like this was back in probably February or March that I had said it to him. So I said, look, first few days in June, I'd be finishing. So, you know, you have three or four months. Hopefully we can get somebody to come in and work with me for a month. So give a great handover. 
and he was he was happy that I wasn't leaving just to go to a different place that was uh, less standard. He knew kind of my passion and mm. my drive. Uh, so he was kind of, he was happy for me to to move on to hopefully better things. I was watching a video there recently. I think you were at some festival and you're talking about the different places that you've worked. Mm-hmm. And they were all, like all highly regarded restaurants for their food. So there was Sotil Hotel. Mm-hmm. There was My Cullen House. Yeah. Uh, now I remember My Cullen House. It's, it's no longer functioning as a, as a restaurant or hotel. I think it's up for sale mm-hmm. the last couple of years. There was a time when that was the place to go and there was nothing like it. And people were served, with, like, I think the waiters had like white, white, gloves, white yeah. gloves on. Yeah. And it was like the food was amazing, the experience. And this house, my Cullen house was, I believe, the house where the original landlords of the my Cullen area and beyond had lived so there was huge history there. And then was, the doors was open as a hotel and restaurant. And it, I mean, people were coming from all over to the place. But yeah, like you've worked in some really, really great places. Yeah, I think when my career started, I started cooking in 1997 in Donnelly's in Berna. I remember going in as a young fella to do a week's work experience. My mum was also a cook, so... Uh, Professionally, or...? She was, yeah, in the nursing home in Berna. She was the main cook in there, so uh, there was always kind of fresh breads, and there was always a great standard of food in our house anyway, so I was like, look, I want to be a chef. And my parents were like, oh, give me a week in Donnelly's, that'll shake it over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I came back, and I was like, I love it. Do you know, this is amazing. So I did a week, and then the chef was like, yeah, great, um, I'll keep you for the summer. So I was only 15, so I worked the summer doing pots, and I was like, look, I have to leave. I don't want to be a pot washer. You know, I want mm. to be a chef, you know. So he's like, no, 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 you stay in. I'll make you a commie chef, which was the beginning of my career, you can say. So I stayed in Donnelly's for four years, right up until after my leaving cert, I think. And did you do home economics or anything in school? Did, but didn't. I did it up until third year, but really, like, I don't want to insult anyone, but the cooking in home ec is not, uh, it was totally different. Yeah. Uh, you know, there was some knitting and this kind of stuff. <laughs> I only wanted to cook, mm. you know. So I said to my parents, maybe after my junior cert, I'll go to chef school. <laughs> no, you can't do that. You have to stay. So I stayed, but I was still working nearly full time. Um, I just wanted to better myself. So then I had another awkward conversation with that chef and said, look, I'm leaving. I'm going to my Cullen house, which in my opinion was a step up. My Cullen house was regarded as probably one of the best in the province maybe yeah, at the time. Yeah. So I went and I did... Uh, my first year placement from college, from culinary school in my Cullen house. Uh, so it was March until January. It was an amazing experience. I really loved it. I loved that step up. It was a fine dining restaurant, like you said, gloves. And the whole thing about hospitality, just it just surrounded me. Yeah, there just wasn't anything like it at the time that people no. had experienced. No, there wasn't. It was a real high end. And it wasn't just about the food. It was about the service. It was about the warmth of the people welcoming them into the restaurant. You were greeted. You were seated in a, a living room with an open fire. Mm. You were given your drinks. And I was like, oh, your table is ready, sir. I was like, this is the level I want to be at. So I was like, this is amazing. So after that, I traveled around the world. I did Australia, America, New Zealand, again, working in more places. And I was just broadening, I suppose, my own horizons, different experiences. I came back to Ireland and I worked in the Salt Hill Hotel. So I did four years in there. Um, Morris McCarthy, his father was one of the founding members of the panel of chefs of Ireland. So like a real top, top class chef, Morris. Uh, So again, I learned more from working under him. But you're going from, we'll say, in Ireland from fine dining to, you know, you're overseas for a few years and then you go somewhere like Sawtill Hotel and they earn their bread and butter by doing conferences and weddings and big events. It's But at the time that I was there, I was focusing on the restaurant in there. So it was 2003 that I was in Sawtill Hotel. So I was going through a trans- transition period. Um, we had some of the best food conferences, yes, in the province some of the most high-end. I remember doing one for the Air Force. The uh, Air Force was in Salt Hill every Mm -hmm. summer. We used to do a function for the pilots and all the top executives of that whole air show, 700 people, fillet steak, foie gras, lobster, langoustines, like not many hotels were doing that. So in my opinion, we were pushing the boundaries of hotels cooking. I really loved it. It was totally different. Not really my scene to be doing huge functions, but okay. again, it was great to see it. It was great to get the experience. It was a superb team of chefs at the time, and I loved every minute of it. So yeah, it was it was great. Uh, I used to do a lot of competitions through KTEX and 
as I was still kind of going through culinary school as well, it was like, I went back to the advanced part of the culinary school. So it kind of worked at the time as well, you know, to do some competitions for the, the All-Irelands and stuff like that. Um, I'd worked in Vinamara as well previous. Oh, yeah. So Pora Kilty was one of the chefs. This guy was one of the most amazing chefs in the country at the time. Uh, learned loads off him as well. He was huge on the competition scene. So he used to go to the competitions, come back with seven golds, four silvers and bronze. You know, it was just an amazing part of culinary times back then. Yeah. Um, and when you say it was amazing back then, did you feel that the West was awakening into actually we can really do good mm-hmm. food here? Like... Uh, you know, I've noticed places I've gone to abroad on holidays, unless you go to what I find like the Trattoria in Italy, which is our family-run restaurants where you get really good quality food. But I find a lot of the places that we, if we compare the food abroad to what we get here, just in a normal restaurant, it doesn't even have to be anything fancy. I find, and maybe it's my own bias, that the quality of food we get here is really, really good. Yeah. But like, was was there an awakening, we'll say, as we were in the Celtic Tiger that look we got up our game and and really improved the quality of our food I think there was a movement towards the whole local scene the culinary trend of local foods and small suppliers and producers which evidently brings you to better produce so Mm. you know for example you can buy a a celeriac in the supermarket for 30 cents but you know just tastes of nothing. So, whereas if you buy a local Irish one that's being grown or organic or whatever it is, it's amazing the difference you can get from making the same soup with just two different suppliers. Like, you know, and that was something I kind of honed in on in the 12 was, yeah, look, I can spend money buying celeriacs or whatever it is. But when it comes to it, the better the produce, the easier my job was becoming. And I think a lot of chefs kind of fell into that as well, going, right, if I do pay a tiny bit extra and get amazing produce, my life is easier, you know, once you have the flavors are there, it's, it's, and Ireland does have amazing producers, you know, you have cheese, you have meats, you have dairy, it's, it's a phenomenal uh, repertoire of food that we do have. So everyone is just tapping into it. Finally, they're going mm. back to the way food was in the 60s and 70s, as in, you know, carrots grown in the ground yeah. and tasting of carrots and stuff like that. And the seasonality of food, people are really honing in on that. You know, you don't get strawberries in the wintertime. It's actually just, you know, July and August, yeah. you know, or that's when you should be using them. But. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 My Italian wife can't understand how people are buying strawberries in yeah. December in supermarkets and God knows what they're sprayed with. Yeah, yeah. What are we good at food wise in Ireland? And what are we bad at? What are we good at? Well, there's lots, you know, our dairy is amazing. Do milk, butters and cream. Our meats, our Irish meats, you know, I've been to France to the markets where they're sending their food all around the world and it's full of Irish beef. So that sings a lot. Our oysters, like Irish produce is amazing. I think, what are we bad at? We don't shout and shout about it enough. We don't. Paddy Irishman can sometimes not be the best businessman, I feel, and working with small suppliers, sometimes I can see that as evident as well. But look, I think it's really changing. I do see a huge transformation in small businesses exploring new ideas. I think COVID really kind of exploded people to open their horizons and say, there is new adventures, there is new um, business opportunities. So if we're only doing it in the local shop, now we're online and now we're exporting. So I do think that COVID has kind of helped people to broaden their horizons and open new opportunities, which is great. It's great for the Irish scene, food scene, you know. So when you were working in places like the 12, I mean, I've heard chefs doing like 70 hours a week. Would that be yeah. true for yourself? Yeah, it's true. Yeah, 100%. Um, and I think I need to clarify is that nobody ever made me do it. Mm. You know, I didn't have a manager or an owner above my head saying you have to work 70 hours a week. I think with chefs, it comes nearly down to pure passion that I wanted to be perfect. Uh I wanted my team to be happy. We had a great team over the years. Um, longevity was there uh, across my te- culinary team in the 12. And it starts at the top. So yeah, the hours, it is what it is. Um, it doesn't bother me really too much. Yes, I want to improve it for myself, for my family life. But at the time, it's pure passion. Yeah. And it's the same in BlackRock now. Like, you know, it's just it has to be right. It's going to be right. I am going to build one of the best restaurants in the whole of Connacht. And at the start, it's a bit tough, but I will accept that and make it better. But it must be great that the hours 
that the place is open. I know there's prep and yep. there's, you know, tidy up afterwards yep. or whatever. I'm sure yeah, there's, yeah. there's better chef words for it th- than I'm giving, but the hours cer- certainly are more sociable because you're, you're close around five o'clock during the yep. week as opposed to a restaurant in a hotel could be open till half nine, if not later. Yeah. yeah. So that must help then with family life because you have a partner and you have children. Yeah, yeah, of course. Look, 15 years in the 12, my wife is well used to it at this stage. Uh, she's enjoying this kind of great time at the moment. Of having you around, is it? Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Are you not killing <laughs> Nearly each other? Nearly divorced. Yeah. <laughs> well, look, uh, as we were a new business, you know, November was tough. December was really tough work-wise. You know, I was there. How was it tough? What do you mean by? Long hours. Just to try and get the restaurant open, try and get it perfect, trying to get it smoother. So the first few days was a bit rough. And then you put in extra hours to make it smoother and smoother the next day. And then it was getting easier and easier. So then, like, we've been blessed that it's been chocker block since we opened. So mm. we open at 8 a.m. every morning until five, seven days a week. And there's, like you were saying, there is usually a queue all the time. Yeah. Uh, it's manageable now. It's managed well. And that's what I mean about putting in extra hours. Maybe there was a a time after work that you'd sit down and say, look, this isn't working. How do we get it better? How do we improve it for the guest? So the manager that is with us in BlackRock, Matthew, came from the 12 as well. So he came from Ashford before that. So, you know, we're well used to working with each other. So it's like, hold on, no, this is not easy. This is not working. We need to improve this. And that sometimes could lead to a two or three hour chat after work. Mm. But that was only making the next couple of days and weeks easier so that's kind of where the long hours did come in at the start and now we're reaping the benefits it's it's quite i'll say it's a lot easier i had two days off the last two days off so yeah it's uh i knew it was going to be tough at the start but that's again comes down to pure passion that i want this to be perfect we want the food to be perfect we want to make the service smooth and now we feel that we're kind of in a really good place we do hope to open for dinner in early March. So, all right. <laughs> so <laughs> those early. Know. <laughs> I know I didn't tell her that yet. <laughs> um, so what you're trying to do is just get the model right first, 100%. before you put more pressure on yourself. Walk, walk before you can run. Yeah, and that was always the idea um, to open for breakfast and lunch. Get it right. Get it perfect. We feel now we're in a really good place. February March was always the plan. I don't know how uh, sustainable it is to open a restaurant in January in the nighttime. So, look, there's a bit of that as well comes into it. Practical thinking, staffing. Uh, so, yeah, we're hoping early March to get going for dinner. So Brilliant. We're hoping maybe to... Like, st- what a view oh. that you have just sitting in there and... Do you know, it's it's an amazing famine cottage. It's 200 year old. The owners, the designers have kept the walls bare. And even to sit in there and look at the walls and say... Imagine the stories those walls could say if they mm. could talk. Like, you know, it's been left bare, bare being an operative word, um, just so it can tell its own story. And it's just an amazing place to sit and look and go. Even at the fire, above the old fire in the cottage, there's like two or three f- stages that it's been repaired and you can see the brickwork and you're like, wow, I wonder, you know, imagine the stories. Uh, but then as you as you wander through into the new extension part where the kitchen is the modern side, it's like, wow, this is totally different. It's like a mo- brand new modern restaurant. You forget you came through an old yeah, cottage. Yeah. The views outside, when you go up onto the patio area overlooking the bay, there is no views like this in the whole west of Ireland. It is just simply sublime. Yeah, it's amazing. It's truly amazing. So, And who owned the cottage? Uh, that's actually a question I'm not 100%. I know there was a, a couple or an elderly lady living there towards the late 90s, I okay. believe, still living in the cottage. Wow. I've heard stories of an old donkey outside. Do you know, there's many people that are coming through the building and saying, oh, yeah, we had family, you know, or you'd hear snippets of little stories. But yeah, there's a beautiful picture in the extension in the glass conservatory at the side of the cottage. There's a massive portrait you can say it's wall it's takes up the whole wall and it's a beautiful picture i think from the 1930s of the cottage they've got the little extension to the left of it as you are looking at it and you can see the whole thing has not really changed Mm. even now with the with the building that has been done it's been done to maintain this kind of heritage that it's not this crazy new modern building but that it does kind of fit in with the landscape and stuff like that so like it's just it's truly beautiful i'm you know I'm excited to be there. Talking about heritage and so on, you're from Barna. Yeah. And Barna was... Fishing village. Fishing village, really, yeah. I mean, um, 
the barn that you grew up in X amount of years ago yeah. is so different, I w- would say, from the barn that today it's so developed, but developed with fancy houses. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're not just talking about housing estates. I mean, these are houses for over a million. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and it must be really strange because I know a woman who um, works for a family, a well-to-do family in the area, and she's like, it's just madness because she said, I grew up in, this is just Parna. Mm-hmm. But now it's, people are coming from all over the country to live here and pay big bucks to build a house here. Yeah, B4. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's great. Like when I grew up, it was very green and barren. And, you know, when I was in school, I was called a farmer from Barna. But then by the time I finished secondary school, I was called a townie because I was from Barna. You know, because yeah. the city had moved out to the suburbs of Barna. Yeah, like you said, I grew up in Barna. My grandparents are there, so I'm actually fourth generation in Barna. My father grew, built his house where his grandparents was and vice versa. So the site that we're on has been in the family for four generations, which is amazing. Um, I know there were poor times. Uh, my own grandmother as well used to uh, pick seaweeds on the shores of Barna. She used to bring it home, hang it on the gates or dry it on the rocks and actually used to sell the seaweed in the markets in Galway, the, the Saturday markets. So it was her kind of side way of gaining some few bob. And what um, would they use the seaweed for? So she was picking and drying dillisk or carrageen. So the carrageen was used for medicinal kind of purposes. So you'd boil it with milk or whatever water uh, for flus. And most people would have known that. Uh, dillisk was dried and sold to a lot of tourists. It was being kind of hailed as this lovely chewy snack and salty snack. So she had this little side hustle of buying and drying seaweed. So she was foraging seaweed in the 60s and 70s, like years and years before people made it kind of a business uh, trendy yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and for sure a business so i remember when i started in the 12 one of the first dishes i had seaweed put through like philadelphia cream cheese and people were like this is amazing what is this seaweed and they're like what <laughs> what because <laughs> you think of it as just being slimy yeah. yeah yeah exactly so then i started to not tell them like and and, and at the end we were making salt caramel sauce with uh, dillisk at the end to, to use it instead of using salt and there everyone then was on trend and it was like oh this guy is amazing but sure I was doing it in 2007. I wasn't telling them because they were looking at me sideways. <laughs> you know, like, but yeah, like seaweed is used a lot in breads uh, because of the iron content, the saltness, just the, the vitamins and minerals that's there in a natural product. It's just phenomenal. So yeah, that's kind of where my love of seaweed came. So, And do people then have seaweed rights where people have bought sections on beaches where they own that seaweed? I think if they're going into the whole harvesting side of it, yes. You know, whereas where I, where I am uh, in Barnet was just a walk along the shore. Mm. I'd see some lovely fresh chillisk after a high tide and I'd pick it, maybe get a little carrier bag and dry it and use it in the restaurant. Or yeah, so it's, I think you're right with the, this, the rights that people would have, but that's more on a commercial basis or definitely on some kind of business level. I think most people wouldn't be that bothered if they weren't in business of seaweed. So, but it's fascinating. I love, I love going during the summer I finished in the 12th in June and Barna School contacted me so I used to be a student in Barna School they were like oh we know you're into seaweed would you bring some of the students so I brought I think they were fifth class if I'm right uh, down to Silver Strand and I was like oh, they're going to have no uh, interest in this whatsoever like <laughs> I had a group of maybe 20 kids and they were fascinated like they were loving this so okay. we walked really maybe an hour along the front of the the cliff at Silver Strand in Barna and around the back and they were like mesmerized because I, I showed them maybe 10 or 15 different types of seaweeds that they could eat and you know you can dry it and they were like blown away whereas I thought I was going to get kids going oh is this over yet but it was brilliant <laughs> no. it was brilliant yeah, it was, can you eat seaweed raw you can all right would I I don't know about that <laughs> you you like there's a difference between seaweeds and sea herbs so sea herbs are more like kind of like a type of grass or a samphire that you can definitely eat. Like natural seaweeds, they're not that nice if you're going to eat them raw. Yeah. You know, sea spaghetti, you need to cook it maybe 10 or 15 minutes because it's like, do you like to eat raw pasta? It's, yeah. you know, you can, you can eat it, but it's not the, the most ideal way. So, And would you go foraging with your children? Used to, and mainly the dog. So I used to drop the kids uh, to school, go swimming, maybe go foraging for an hour uh, in the morning before work. And then, like some, you know, if it was summertime, samphire, I'd be using on some of the fish dishes or sea truffle, I'd be picking it and then drying it and powdering it. Like, so it was quite labor intensive, but it was more for a labor of love as well. Great to get out in the fresh air in yeah. the mornings. Uh, 
had to walk the dog. So all of these kind of compiled into a, a kind of passion of picking seaweed or foraging blackberries or slows or whatever it may be. Like I love getting out uh, into nature. It's it's a great kind of clear the headspace. You know, in the 12, I had 40 or 50 staff working under me uh, at times, you know, during the summer, trying to play chess with a few of these. And, you know, it's a great time to get out and clear the head. Yeah. Uh, but you know, knowing 10 different types of seaweeds, like who taught you that? Where was the knowledge handed down? As I said, my grandmother was doing it, so it kind of inspired me. Uh, she would have shown me a few of them. There was a local guy, Michael Mulholland. He was a lecturer in GMIT, a great friend of mine. He was a massive fan of foraging. He was out every day. So he's he used to have his uh, few pints in the 12, and he'd come up to the kitchen. He'd be Martin, Martin, look, look, I got this and this and this. So... I'd be like, oh, where'd you get it? Oh, I got it under the rocks over there and blah, blah, blah. So there was some of that knowledge handed from him mm. down to me. Um, Sally and John McKenna in Cork, McKenna's Guide, they're a massive seaweed foraging. They might come across something posted on social media and then you'd be like, oh, I must try and find that. Or, you know, so it was a lot of self-thought, a lot of self, again, passion. You drive you to to get yourself to be better and better and get to know more and more. Some of them you'd taste and you'd be like, oh, Jesus, <laughs> I don't need to go looking for that yeah, one again. Yeah, like, yeah. You know, but then there's some of them you're like, wow, this blow my mind and you'd bring it in I'd use it on a tasting menu in the in the west and then people would be like Gene wow this is amazing that you know arrow grass is a it's a seaweed that grows it's, it's very similar to grass so it looks like grass but it tastes of coriander so when you chop it up and you put it onto maybe a langoustine you know we were predominantly Irish produce in the west so it was like wow this this phenomenal like you know and then they'd know where it came from it's like yeah we picked it this morning so, so is it the experimentation as well that you love there, of course there is, yeah. But it's the exploring of new ideas and fresh ingredients and new produce. And then you're like, wow, that'll work this with this. And then there's the reaction we used to get from the guest as well. Yeah, to say, yeah. So would wow. you look at their, when a dish goes out, are you kind of looking to see how people react? At the time with tasting menus in the West, we were bringing the food to the guest. So I'd present them with the langoustine from Aran Islands with blah, blah, blah. And then when you'd go back out, maybe with the next course or with the dessert course, they'd be like, Martin, wow, that was phenomenal. That, this, this, and this was amazing or whatever it was. And that'd only make you want to go again tomorrow to get more and to do it. And and that's what I'm saying where the long hours had come. Sometimes you'd totally forget that you were in the kitchen for 15 hours because it was just an amazing day or mm. we'd done a chef's table and the feedback was just phenomenal. So, and even now in Black Rock, we're getting that when people are eating their food, they come, they see us in the window, it's an open kitchen and they're like, wow, it's amazing. Can't wait to come back for lunch or dinner or whatever it is. So I love that guest interaction to see them smile when they taste the food or to know it's like, oh, thank you. Thank you. It's great. And that gives even the whole team a lovely kind yeah, of boost yeah. as well to say, do you know what? The work you're doing is it's appreciated. So. And what concoction have you come up with where you're like, you surprised yourself where it's like, wow, that is really good. Oh, jeez, there's lots of that, you know. <laughs> oh, I suppose that's oh. the difference between a chef and me where I'd be like, yeah, there's probably one thing, yeah. <laughs> no, it's like there's times that you'd be like, jeez, that's good. Yeah. Do you know, uh, nut brown butter ice cream is a nice one. That was like, we used to do our own ice creams in the 12, so you'd be coming up with some strange slow gin uh, sorbets uh, using so we'd pick I'd pick slows during the September time late September slows it's a little berry that's on a tree in the but in autumn okay. uh, if you eat it raw it will actually suck the saliva out of your mouth and you'd be like sour like but it, it I thought slow gin was slowly made gin <laughs> <laughs> well it is kind of because j traditionally you make you pick your slows you mix it with the gin and sugar and whatever herbs and spices you want and it's left to ferment until Christmas and then it was drank over Christmas that was usual the traditional method so when I was picking slows in September I'd be thinking that's for my tasting menu at Christmas or maybe New Year's Eve or definitely Valentine's Day. So that was kind of the whole thought process for me to develop these dishes and say, right, but yeah, you're right, slow. It, does, it is slow, <laughs> but if you eat one, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's uh, but again, things like that, that whole expert, it's not experimenting, it's just learning new things. It's It's just fascinating. And as a chef, your brain never stops because you're always learning and always, well, I'm always trying to develop myself to be better and better and push ourselves. And that's the exciting bit. And that's the bit that keeps us interested and fascinated and eager. You know? And has there ever been, you know, a place like, 
because like I'm married to an Italian lady and people often when they find out she's Italian even last night she was doing um, an Irish language course in uh, my daughter's primary school and they're like oh you're from Italy we love Italy and we love the food of Italy and people always say to her like when they go to Italy they're blown away by the food Mm -hmm. you know that they haven't experienced you know the way pasta should be or lasagna or Mm -hmm. pizza Mm -hmm. or whatever Uh, like have there been places you have gone to where you're just so blown away by like having that real food orgasm as such? Like I think when I was in uh, Asia, like f- tasting garlic and ginger and curries and stuff like that, you're like, Jesus, wow, this tastes unreal, you know? Mm. But I do think that we can do that with Irish produce. Like if we stop using garlic from China that's been grown six months ago and actually support the Irish guy is that during the summer you have garlic scapes, you have the elephant garlic and, you know, and use our own produce. Yes, it's a little bit more expensive, but by God, it's it's well worth it. Uh, mm. Same with Irish cheeses and oysters and, you know, people are shouting about our food and I think we should be shouting about our own food. And I think that f- that new kind of wave of passionate food growers and food producers, um, it's just going to push Ireland on in the culinary scene. I've always been one to say that I think it's good to, I'll happily come away and pay a little bit more for a really good meal than pay money and be like, that's grand like. But I think the price of food seems to have just like shot up drastically in the last year or two. Like what's your experience of that on the ground and what is going on and how how much of it is genuine and how much of it has been exploited by suppliers or something like i think one of the first things i love to talk about is menu prices for example chicken in a restaurant is let's say 20 euros and you're sitting there going jesus i can buy a chicken breast for a euro but what people maybe don't understand is a restaurant's profits has to pay all the staff it has to pay all the food, has to pay all the gas, has to pay all the electricity, all the insurance, all the rates, maybe the building costs and their mortgages, um, like gas prices, electricity bills are gone through the roof. Mm-hmm. So that chicken is, yeah, maybe it is only costing the restaurant three or four euros, but the extra three or four euros that you're paying is actually keeping the restaurant open because they can't get money any other way. You know, so I think people sometimes forget that a restaurant has to pay all its own bills as well. And when they look at the restaurant menu prices, it's not just the food that this has to cover. It has to cover everything else. And like at home, prices have gone through the roof. So when I was in the 12, the box of butter for us was like 40 euros. It's now 104 for the same box, you know. Is that because it literally goes down to the the price of the, the feed for the cows? For sure, it comes down to like if they're buying the wrapping for the butter and it used to cost them 20 euros and now it's 50. So it's just the driving costs across the board. Whereas if it used to cost them 100 euros to send a pallet and now it's 150 euros to put, you know, to yeah. transport the pallet because of diesel costs for the pallet company or what, it, whichever way it be. It's just a knock-on effect for everything. And that's only one product. You know, it's, it's across. Now, there are some things that are, are not. And I'm lucky that I am supporting local producers. So they say to me, Martin, look, your eggs used to be 20 cent each or 30 cent each or whatever it is. The feed has gone up because the transport company has put 20 euros on the delivery cost and the feed has gone up for 35 euros a ton and blah, blah, blah. So at the end of the day, these costs are passed on to you. It's unfortunate, yes. But I think when we're supporting local producers, it kind of does help everyone in the benefit in the long run. But you have to be clever then when you're doing your menu because you're saying, okay, this is the... The kind of the core audience, core the, you know, this is the customer profile we've created of who we want to target. So therefore, mm-hmm. this is within their budget. So now I have to come up with ingredients that will work within that budget to create dishes. Mm-hmm. Do you, like, do you have to nearly think in that way rather than I'm going to create this and then we'll figure out? <laughs> yeah, no, you can't. That's I suppose the the restaurant running 101 is that you write your menus to your your customer base. And then, yeah, you're starting to look at prices and say, look, can we afford to have crab claws? Well, crab claws are 60 euros a kilo. That means the guest has to pay 15 euros. Do I think the guest will pay 15 euros? No, I don't. You know, yeah. uh, and there has to be that kind of uh, realization and 
reality check as well. So then you'd be like, okay, I can't afford to put crab claws in my menu. And crab claws is a good example because they're so expensive. Mm. Uh, we had that issue before. It was like, look, why is my portion so small? Well, it would cost me 35 euros to give them to you. <laughs> Do you know? Yeah. Um, so at that stage, you just say, look, take it off. It's 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 actually easier. But yeah, it's, it's a tough it's, one. Which is probably frustrating as well because there's so many great dishes you know you can make, but you're yeah. limited. Yeah, but again, when you look at a fisherman, probably he has to pay his staff more because there is a great staff. Uh, there's a lack of staff in every industry. So for him to get a fisherman, maybe he has to pay them an extra two or three euros an hour. Then he has to pay an extra 30 or 40 euros per time he goes out with diesel on the boat and food cost is high. So any food he's buying. So his trip has gone up a thousand euros. Who's going to pay for that? Well, it has to be whoever's buying the fish. So it's it's a knock-on effect everywhere across across yeah. every industry. And then should we worry when food is just really cheap? You know, someone what? says, oh, I can buy a, a full chicken for five euro, but like, is that even good? <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely not something I'd be buying because realize you have to be able to realize, well, that's unsustainable. Like, you know, and even to drive it from Dublin to here or from, you know, the transportation of it, the packaging of it has to be a couple of 40, 50 cent alone. So, and the shop has to get a profit. So really, is this chicken being bought for two euros maybe? Mm. And what exactly have they given this chicken for a year or two of its life for two euros? Like, you know, yeah. so yeah, there is definitely that cheap is not always better. No. But, you know, I think the 12 was a great example of that over the years that, 2007, the hotel opened. 2009, 10, 11 was the world's worst uh, recession. The 12 stuck to quality produce. We never, a lot of other hotels and restaurants was racing to the bottom to give us the cheapest, cheapest food. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, they didn't survive, but the 12 is still thriving, you mm. know, because you pay a touch extra, but it was like, that was delicious. That was amazing. That was lovely. And that's kind of the ethos of the hotel that sustained us through the tough times was, we're still given quality produce. And when you look at some of the bigger businesses around the country, the ones that are doing the best are always, the busiest are always the best producers and companies. So it kind of, it does say something like, yeah. Yeah. Um, a lot of chefs in the news over the last couple of years, probably since COVID, where they're just struggling financially. And mm -hmm. it's probably chefs who have had, opened up their own restaurants. Yeah. So they're struggling with just the cost of that. Yeah and maintaining and retaining staff would you do you think ever knowing what you know would you still be interested going down the road of opening up your own place one day well technically uh, i can say that that opportunity has hit me now because when i met our new owners they were like look we're not hospitality based we are building a restaurant and we're going to employ yourself and Matthew as the dream team to look after this you could do what you want that was obviously a part of the initial negotiations with myself that this is the style of food that I want to do this is the producers I want to do these are my ethos and they were like sounds great you know at the end of the day it has to, it has to be financially viable mm. of course you have to be able to to produce the goods but Basically, this is what we've been handed is our own restaurant um, to do exactly what we want. So this is an opportunity I couldn't turn down when you get that kind of support from from the owners above to say, look, we trust you 100%. They're amazing too because they have their own values and ethos. They're like, look, we love to support local. I don't want to see coffee cups coming from China. We would prefer to support the Irish market. Brilliant. Yes, we know it's a bit more. Um a lot of the stonemasons in the place were in Black Rock was done by locals. There was a few Connemara men on site. Could hear the the couple of fuckle going go on as I was passing through. You know, and that's their entity as well as that they support locals. So again, it starts at the top, and they've kind of entrusted us to do the same. Um, so now we were given a blank canvas, and so far so good. <laughs> it's working out. So do you then pay rent to the owners or? No, no, I'm an employee of BlackRock. So we have our four owners. And as I said, they're not hospitality based. And obviously they are on board. They are passionate about their project. This is their like uh, crown jewel in their in their whole enterprise. They they didn't want BlackRock to become some kind of like massive chain or anything. They yeah. wanted this to be as good as it is, um, which is amazing. They were like, we don't want to see rubbish flying down the prom. We don't want to, yeah. we want this to be for the people of Salt Hill. Um, we want everyone to be able to enjoy it, not just the elite or whatever Brilliant. it is. Uh, it, we want it to be for everyone. And they've put their heart and soul into it to make sure it's just perfect. So 
it gives us a great kind of standing as well as as staff to say, wow, this is just, it's an amazing location. It's an iconic building. And now we just want to do it justice. You know, we've heard a few people coming through going, oh, I used to know the owners or mm. my grandparents, blah, blah, they'd be so proud now to see us the way it is to restore it to its former glory, to see us just, you know, with the old slates on the floor, the walls are kind of untouched that you haven't just demolished it because the, I think they could have demolished it if they'd wished um, and started again. But they were like, no, no, we yeah. want you know, when you speak to people about Salt Hill, they were like, oh yeah, the diving board, you know yourself, yeah. obviously from Salt Hill, the prom, the diving board, it's iconic. So you couldn't, you couldn't change that. Yeah. Uh, and that's the great part about it. It's just there. And it's great to see Salt Hill coming back to life again, because it w was the place to go in the kind of 80s and early 90s. And I mean, if you go down towards the other end of Salt Hill, away from the diving tower you can see mm -hmm. like the Warwick which was the nightclub to go to and it was a mm -hmm. hotel that's completely demolished yeah. right beside it was Oasis or Liquid yeah. completely demolished the Elginton where you had vagabonds and stuff that's now uh, a place for, for people seeking refugee status or mm -hmm. or kind of safety from they're fleeing wars literally mm -hmm. from various places in the world so at least they have a, a safe haven there but it's certainly it you know, it, it did lose its charm there for a good decade or so, I feel. And uh, I think the more businesses that are in Salt Hill and the more it thrives, the more it benefits everyone. I think Irish people had this kind of backwards way of, oh, I want to be the only one there and I'll be the busiest. Mm -hmm. I think the more good things and great places that are in Salt Hill, it's more uh, appealing for people to come to, yeah. more people will come to it and then it's going to benefit everyone. And I think Salt Hill is going through a bit of a re regeneration uh, process that businesses are getting busier um, and it's great to see it. Yeah. It really is to see, like you say, to go back to its former glory. Yeah. Um, and it's superb. Not only are you busy <laughs> with Blackrock Cottage, but you're on the telly as well. I do a bit, yeah. You, you yeah. Do a bit. Tell, tell us about working with Virgin Media. Yeah, it's great. Um, I'm actually up there on this Saturday coming, so a couple of days time. And it's great. I got into it years and years ago. They brought in a few chefs to do a bit of a, a trial and there was four or five or six of us. And then I think I'm the only one that was still there at the moment. Maybe there's one other. So you're on the morning show. You're, yeah. You're like the Gino DeCampo on, <laughs> with Phil and Holly. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Uh, the English speaking Hector. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's great. It's great fun. They kind of give you a free reign to do exactly what you want. You know, when I started up there, I think it was 2016 or 15, uh, I was warmly embraced by the presenters that were there. So Anna Daly was there and Laura Woods and Simon is a great pal of mine, fellow Man United fan. So we've been through the, the good times and the bad times <laughs> together. But it was just that love and affection that I got when I started that I really remember. Do you know, I remember the girls kind of grabbing me by the arm the first few days going, you'll be fine. You're amazing. You know, you're, you're great. Yeah. Don't worry. And that's nice. That yeah, really yeah. is nice. And even afterwards going, you were great. You were brilliant. You know, you did well. Do you know, you should be happy. I'm just giving you little bits of advice and things like that. So I did great. And now it's, it's kind of like part and parcel of life now. It's like, oh yeah, off to TV. So uh, pack up the car at 5 a.m., hit the motorway. Wow. Uh, it's live TV each time, so I'm there about half seven, usually a little tease at 9 a.m. and cooking about 20 past 10 generally at the weekends. It's usually eight, nine minute slot, depends. Sometimes I'm going down to six or seven. Uh, kind of have to be prepared for each scenario. Mm. Uh, so yeah, I love doing it. Um, what do you personally get out of it? I don't mean financially now, but like what, what's the real reward for you in, in doing it? I think uh, number one is the promotion for the business, you know, so you have people coming in going, oh, that's your man off television. Oh, I saw you there this morning. It was amazing. I can't wait to try your recipe, which is nice, you know, when you're walking or whatever. And, oh, I saw you on TV last week. It was amazing. People texting you or, you know, whatever, messaging you saying, look, your dish looks phenomenal. Also, I try and uh, promote businesses that I'd be working with. So any suppliers, small producers that we'd be using, I try and make sure that they're incorporated in. You're not really allowed to shout about them too loud, but um, with the recipes and stuff, they'd definitely get a little mention and they'd be very thankful saying, look, a few people saw you or heard about you or yeah. whatever you were using, our cheese or our meats or our butter, whatever whatever it be uh, on TV. And thanks so much. And it's kind of a whole little circle, you know, about yeah. helping everyone. So it's great for business. You can't deny that. Great for myself. You know, I get to enjoy it. 
yeah, it's just good fun. So I mentioned Gino DeCampo and, you know, you have your Gordon Ramsay and your Jamie Oliver. Do you think a chef to be successful needs to nearly create themselves as a brand or as a product? <sighs> yeah, look, um, first of all, you have to be a good chef. You know, you have to have a good business and then, yes, the accolades like TV comes and then when you're on TV, you get more opportunities and then, yeah, you, you develop yourself into a brand and a person. But at the end of the day, if you don't have a great business, you can't develop yourself into a brand, you know, so it's kind of a little bit of to and fro. But yeah, like it does bring its own perks, the TV side, but yeah. But are you like, are you consciously trying to ensure that, you know, you, Martin O'Donnell, you know, you are this public figure as... No. Chef Martin O'Donnell, no. Not at all. Um, my greatest satisfaction is when I see the restaurant full or busy. It's when people come up to the window that are there in front of you and saying, your food is amazing. That was the, the nicest fish dish, turbot, scallops, whatever I had in my life. That was an amazing experience. We loved the restaurant. That gives me more satisfaction than somebody texting me saying, oh, yes, yeah, you were great on TV. Like TV doesn't pay the bills, yeah. doesn't, you know. At the end of the day, BlackRock is now my home. It's my new project. Uh, it's my passion. And that's number one. So we have to make sure that this first is perfect. The fact we're, I wouldn't, I don't know what I say used to, but we've experienced so much good food now over the years. Our customers getting more contrary. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we can't say that guy. I'd say <laughs> customers get more educated. <laughs> have to be diplomatic, correct now, yeah, before you throw me really? under the bus. Um, no, I just think uh, people understand now they have higher, not higher expectations, they're just more educated that they can say, hold on now, I'm not paying for that. I'm sorry, like, that's not a required, that's not the required standard or the normal standard anymore. Mm -hmm. I expect better. Yeah. And please give it to me. And if you don't, I'll go somewhere else and get it. Yeah. So, yes, times have changed for sure. Yes, the guests are more, and so they should be. You know, it's their hard-earned money. Look, I've been out thousands of times myself and my wife, and it's like, oh, why did we bother going in there? Like, you yeah, know, yeah. You know, you pay 30 or 40 quid, I'd be the kind that wouldn't really say anything. I might, but I generally wouldn't. You know, I wouldn't be like, oh, yeah. That, Would you, you know, be like, where's the chef? Yeah. Do I want to speak to the chef. <laughs> do you know who I am? <laughs> no, definitely not. But I think everyone's been in those experiences that you've gone out disappointed. You've, yeah. Oh, yeah, that was 50 quid. Well, yeah, it wasn't great, was it? Yeah. And, you know, and I just think that people, big question people ask me, do you mind cooking the steak well done? I don't care because that guy is paying or that lady is paying 30 euros or whatever it is, 35, 40, 20, it doesn't matter. They're paying the bill so they should get what they actually want. Mm. Uh, it's not my personal preference. That's true. But I can still cook exactly what the guest wants because there are guests and they're paying our wages at the end of the day. So, yeah, I think guests have changed, but hey, that's... And just get these finicky orders where, you know, someone look for... A cheeseburger, but they don't want any cheese and they don't want any meat in the burger. And, you know, like just ridiculous requests. Do you get that sort of? <laughs> <laughs> now, now you're pulling on heartstrings, yeah, because they're the ones I really hate. Look, allergies are allergies, you know, gluten-free. We've, the 12 is named as a gluten-free partner with the Celiac Society of Ireland. So this does not bother me in the least because uh, it's quite easy when you are cooking uh, real food. It's generally the gluten comes in when it's processed food. So... With the the fresher the food, the less of a problem it comes. So gluten-free was never an issue for us because it was mostly fresh. But obviously, like strict allergies and stuff like that, you'd have no problem kind of trying to accommodate them. But it's the, the notions, the notion mm. ones that you're like, geez. And then they start to rile me and I might just say no. But yeah, look, yeah. I try and deter them. Like, you know, oh, can I make up my own breakfast? No, I'm sorry, you can't. Like, you know, yeah. oh, but why? Well, actually, if I have to stop and slow down and do this and this for you, you're actually ruining everyone else's experience. Mm. And I'm sorry, I'm not risking that just for one kind of pathetic order. Yeah, um, yeah. So I'm sorry, like, you know, yeah. it's... I have to be trying to find a, a medium ground, but we really, we try and make sure that everyone gets a great experience and not just one or one person ruins it for everyone else. That's not the way it is. Yeah, because I, like I, I've been with people and I get a great sense of people with how they treat staff who are waiting on them in a, in a restaurant or whatever. And if they get finicky with their order, it's like, oh, this person is actually going to be difficult. And there was a great article I read recently where there was a man interviewing people to work at his business and he was acting as the receptionist and based on how they 
engage uh, uh, with the receptions and their attitude towards the receptions. That's when he I decided see. if they moved on to the next stage of an wow. interview or not. But it, I think sometimes, because I have seen it in person where people think, they have notions, as you said, they think they are something that little bit special. Mm-hmm. So they have to have something that isn't actually on the menu. But I think it actually says a lot more about them than what they actually think they're saying yeah. about themselves. Yeah, 100%. I always... Uh, you know, over the years, if we had a strict diet and they'd contact me, email me a few days in advance and say, look, I'm on a, a no cook diet. I'm on a whatever diet. Can you please do this, this and this for me? Great. No mm. problem. Thanks for the heads up. That mm. really helps us. Appreciate it. We'll do anything if we can for you. Mm. But when you get a vegan coming in, he goes, oh, sorry, I'm allergic to nuts as well. And I'm on this, this and this is like, well, <laughs> we try and give the best experience we can. And if you come in and say Saturday night at seven o'clock, oh, by the way, I can't have this, this and this. I can't have this, this and this. Why you didn't tell us? Like, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. because at the end of the day, we want to give a good experience. We could have pre- yeah. we could have kind of prepped for this. But now you're just throwing. Yeah, which makes it exciting because you have to think outside. And 100%, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, but not at seven o'clock when the restaurant's full. So I'm, I'm sorry, sir, but tough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, yeah. Uh, what has it been like over the last couple of years seeing like people happily worked in restaurants yeah. uh, for years. It was great for people going to college, if you yeah. quit on the side or, you know, um, just extra income into the house, you know, if they're minding children during the week. And then, I don't know, just, of course, there was the great resignation that took place. But I don't know what the problem suddenly became where so many people were leaving jobs and jobs that were never an issue before people were leaving. And I'm sure you've seen it yourself in the hospitality trade of people just wanting a career change or Mm -hmm. they're now moving to Australia for two years or something like that. You know, you in the kitchen looking out and seeing all this going on, like what were your thoughts on it and where has it come now two, three years later? Uh, It's a tough one. Um, Staff, staffing issues is a massive problem industry wide. And I don't think it's just hotel and catering or culinary. I look at our own suppliers and they're saying, well, we can't get guys to pack the veg. We can't get the organic farm and balance low. We can't get guys to pick the veg. We can grow it, but we can't get it out of the ground. We're losing money. We can't get a delivery driver. We can't get this. We can't get, you know, so I kind of take great solace that it's not just us. It's Mm -hmm. not just our industry, you know, and it just seems to be a shortage of people that now other with the whole COVID thing that some areas closed down and other avenues opened. So people left the avenue they were in to go to the other side. And they're like, actually, this is a great side. I don't want to go back to the other side. And it's not just hospitality, I think, in in, in every career mm. and that they changed. So just think there's been a massive shift from one kind of circle to the other and people are happy in that new life. So at the moment, and I hope this table is wood as I bounce my hands. It is. <laughs> touch wood. We're actually doing okay on staff. I think going back and I suppose into that culinary side, a raven lunatic in the kitchen is not going to now maintain staff and that's for sure mm. because people are just like, sorry, like I'm not listening to you. And would you have been? <sighs> <laughs> We're not going to put a poll out there to, to your listeners, but uh, look. Um, <laughs> like what would get you so riled up in the kitchen? <laughs> what would get me riled up? Um, mistakes by staff because I think what I always used to say to my staff is, I love all the staff. You're all great people. You're all lovely people. But it's the mistakes that frustrate me because I know the guest is not getting the experience I want them to get. Okay, so I had to explain to these guys, this is not about my ego. I don't give a shit about me. It's not about me. It's about the guest not getting the experience I want them to get. And then that would disappoint me that it wasn't getting to them. Yeah. Uh, and that would that'd rile me, like, you know. Uh, <laughs> Would it make me into a raven lunatic? Yeah, probably at the start. But look, or it's just pure passion for the guest to get the best. Yeah. And then... Uh, and no, is it hard then if it's an open kitchen that you can't be like screaming and throwing pans at people because everyone in the restaurant <laughs> will see what's going on? No, I think those days are gone as well as in screaming and throwing pans. You'd be like, come on, like Jeannie Max, like, you know, have you no pride in what you're doing? This is just not right, mm. you know? Uh, and you'd kind of given out and you'd be whinging and moaning and you'd be, kind of like come on this has to be better whether it's open or not and did it help them by there's some it did and there's some it didn't because you're saying now you can't really do that so well you can do it in a different way like you know uh i'd be very staff conscious now going look guys you know we're all here to 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 do one thing and that's produce great food 
yes, I'm passionate. Sorry if it comes out too hard sometimes. I apologize now, but it's really just the passion to get to what we want uh, for the guests to get the best. So, but I think now we've just kind of scaled back and said, please do it this way and please try harder mm. and faster. Please hurry up, you know, because again, I want the guests to get the best experience and I know you're slowing a bit. So mm. it's always comes, Gary, to be the, it's just passion for the guests to get the best. And now you can't be screaming in the kitchen. You have to be uh, mindful of others' well-being. Uh, maybe they're not mm -hmm. in the best space. I'd always try and sit my staff and say, look, guys, please tell me if it's if it's a hard time, it's a bad week, if there's something going on at home. If And it's not to be nosy. I really, I, I don't really care what it is. I just want to be aware of it. So if you are going through a hard week, that I'm not going to come down on you and say, look, what the hell is going on here? Why mm -hmm. are you late? Well, actually, there's a little issue at home. Well, thanks for telling me, and I'll be a bit more understanding. But I think there's a bit of communication with everyone, and that's what we're trying to build is this happy place. I hope to God that we can build Blackrock Cottage to be the place that everyone wants to work. Or if you meet a staff, it's like, oh, where are you working, Blackrock? What's it like? It's amazing. I love yeah, it. Yeah. It's great. There's a great buzz. Everyone wants great food. Everyone is pushing to have an amazing standard. It's respectful. It's mindful. It's great for work-life balance. You know, this is the kind of just chatting with chefs yesterday. Uh, this is the new modern side of culinary arts that's coming. There used to be a dictatorship in kitchens, as in I'm number one, you're number two, and and all the way down. So that poor guy, when he was starting, felt like something on the bottom of your shoe. Uh, yeah, yeah. And it felt very hard to get up that ladder. Whereas now with me and the guys that I'm building around me, it's like, guys, we're a team of senior chefs. We are training younger chefs, yes, but... If you want a title, I'll give it to you. But to me, it doesn't mean Jack, um, <laughs> you know, because we're a team that wants to create great food. Do you have that fear then that you're training someone who could be your future competitor? Great. That's okay. what I want. I want, uh, you know, if I'm not there for a week that when the bosses come in and they have dinner and they're like, oh, did you? we didn't even know he wasn't here. That's the dream. That's, okay. you know, Excellent. and I want to build. So it. there is no ego there, really? Like in, in my head, in my place, no. No, I want to build a team that's just as good without me as they are. Because if they're as great without me, well, then we could open different avenues. We can open a new restaurant. We can open a new hotel. We can start to build a business to be better, which is going to benefit them in the long run because mm. they might get a promotion to to have my job as I move on up to the next project or whatever it is. So the dream is that you have guys pushing your door to, to take your job. And it's like, great, this is kind of my dream. So... That's what I aim to create down in Blackrock is a place that everyone is happy, that uh, we can build this great team and just develop the other side of the business, which is more projects, better, get everyone happy. And yeah. As we come towards the end, and I don't even know your own background, but what are your thoughts on chefs who smoke? I was one of them. I was chewing them for, for years uh, as I thought it was a, a relaxation therapy. As I come up to my 10th year wedding anniversary and 10th year of, of quitting smoking, I don't miss them whatsoever. I decided we got married in the 4th of December and I bought duty free in Florida coming home. And when they were, I said, when these are gone, they're gone and I'm finished. And I never smoked after that again. Um, never had a sneaky one, you know, and people would say, oh yeah, I was out drinking and I had one. Yeah, yeah. And I've never had that. Okay, and I've Christ. never had the urge to do it. What do I think about chef smoking? Um, and and the reason I ask is because when I stopped smoking 12, 13 years yeah. ago, it was more just when I was going through college and socializing at night with my mm. college buds that um, when I stopped, I suddenly noticed like there was a beer I used to drink all the time. That was disgusting when I stopped smoking because I could taste it. Yeah. But my taste buds opened up. I could suddenly taste things. And it happened over a few months to two years mm -hmm. where I could suddenly taste foods that I, I never got that taste from those yeah. particular foods before. And I've been on holidays where I would see a chef outside smoking and I'd say, okay, we're not going in here too. Because they are not tasting the food the way we are going to taste the food. So that's why it's always been a little pet peeve for me. But one chief doesn't make a whole operation. So like, yeah. if you go into a restaurant, you see one guy outside smoking, there's probably, I hope, five or six more inside. You know? So when we as a team in the kitchen are doing something and it's like, oh yeah, I'll taste it. And I'd be like, geez, that's awful nice. Here, taste that. And they'd be like, oh yeah, it's class. You know? or, or 
uh, on the flip side, do you think that needs more salt and pepper? And I taste it or somebody else had tasted it as a part of a team. So generally in the kitchens, it's more of a camaraderie of tasting and making sure that everything's right. You know, like if we make, for example, a, a pot of soup, we taste it once at the end and say, yes, that 20 liters or that 40 liters, if you're doing a wedding, that 100 liters of soup, it's perfect. You don't have to taste it again, you know? So you might make a soup today for a wedding tomorrow. You taste it, it's done, it's lovely. And then you can serve it confidently knowing, I've tasted that, it's perfect, it's ready to go. So you don't have to keep doing it every time you serve something. So a bit of a perception there of uh, chefs taste every single thing that leaves the kitchen. Yeah, yeah. No, you taste one of that batch of, of whatever it is. And then your understanding is like, yes, it's perfect, it's great, it's done. Chef Martin O'Donnell, thank you for thank joining you, us in Gary Talks. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks again to Chef Martin O'Donnell for joining us on this week's episode of Gary Talks. And thank you for listening to the episode and for supporting the podcast. Make sure you follow Blackrock Cottage on Instagram. They put up lots of great pics. And again, if you can follow Gary Talks on Instagram, LinkedIn or TikTok, that would be great as well. So we can connect and engage and you can tell me what you think of the show. Also, my thanks to the team at gkmedia.ie who help me every week in putting the show together. We provide the podcast for free. Everyone who comes on the show does it in their own free time. The wishes that you are getting some value out of listening to the podcast and you're picking up some of the great nuggets of wisdom that our guests share on the show. And if you can support gkmedia.ie in any way, we produce digital content to provide marketing solutions. So we do video productions, live streaming, web design, graphic design, podcasting, social media management. If there's anything there that we can do to support you or your business, please do get in touch. Have a great week and I look forward to talking to you again on Friday for a short bonus episode of Business Bites. Take care. <laughs>